podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barblos Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barblos Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barblos.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Alderson. Nick Hanna is once again in the room. He's sick. He's got um, coconut water on point. <laughs> I think his, his outbreak monkey gave it to him. Tell us a story. I try to keep my thoughts collected for this for this podcast, but yeah, I'm, I might be much so much I'm a mute. <laughs> yeah. So on this one, we are going to be talking about species reintroduction. If you don't know what that is, um, this will be a good episode for you. This has impact on everybody's fishing, everybody's local fisheries, all up and down California, and actually. Anywhere you're at, really, there's some some sort of re- reintroduction going on, I'm sure. Um, so with us today is John Ambrose from NOAA. John, how are you? I'm doing great today. Thanks for having me here. So I'm going to I'm gonna read your, your bio really quick, and then we'll get into your background and whatnot. Cool? Yes. Okay. So John has worked for NOAA, uh, which stands for the National Marine Fisheries Service, for the last 19 years and is a salmon reintroduction coordinator for the Central Valley Area Office. Uh, before his transfer to Sacramento, John worked as an Endangered Species Act implementa- on the Endangered Species Act implementation for coho salmon and steelhead in, cal- in coastal streams south of the Golden Gate. Uh, what Are we talking like San Francisco? We're talking Santa Cruz, San Mateo, okay, gotcha. Monterey. So his work included permitting recovery recovery plan development, permit streamlining, fish passages, and uh, water management issues, restoration projects, and enforcement actions with NOAA's offices of law enforcement. So prior to NOAA, he worked for 10 years as a head biologist for Georgia Pacific's 200,000 acres of Timberland in Mendocino County, where he managed the company's numerous fisheries and wildlife programs, as well as in, in ensuring the timber operations were in compliance with the applicable state and federal laws regarding wildlife protection. I'm almost done. This is a long, this is, this bio is quite impressive. No, you've just been, you've got a lot of stuff. Uh, He is past president of Lake County land trust. And in his spare time, he and his wife explore the hinterlands. Did I say that right? I did. Yes, you did. Of the great basin and the great basin in Utah. Oh, Nevada, Utah. Nevada, Utah. Cool. Uh, John has a degree in wildlife management from Humboldt State University and now lives in Sacramento. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks. I've been listening to you guys recently, and it's a great podcast. Thank you very much. We work really hard on it every week. So where are you from originally? I'm California born and bred, and uh, I, I grew up in a small town south of San Luis Obispo called Shell Beach, 
And then my parents made the horrible decision of, <laughs> and the nice thing about living and at the beach is that this was before helicopter parents, right? So <laughs> right. you could just go down, walk down the cliffs and worry if it's high tide or not and run or not. And you could just spend all your time outside. And you lived. I, yes. You, you survived not, to this day. Believe it or not. And, uh, you know, my parents made the horrible decision of moving to suburbia. And and that was in a in a agricultural town called Santa Maria. And not to disparage Santa Maria, but there was nothing to do. And I'm living in a suburban town, used to live at the beach, and the closest thing to water was a concrete-lined agricultural ditch. And as a kid, that's where you went to go play. So some of your guests live in great places. I got to live in suburbia for an awful long time after living at the beach. And... Um, after that, I went to Humboldt State and lived in Fort Bragg for 10 years, then lived in Lake County, and now live in Sacramento. So what, you know, if you didn't, you didn't grow up in the outdoors, really, per se, um, like I think a lot of the other, say, people that get into biology and ecology as, as cho chosen professions, what made you get into this career track? You know, I, although... I, I recognize a lot of your guests do have that extensive outdoor background when they're young. But my dad, I think to get away from my mother, um, <laughs> <laughs> would often take me camping for protracted periods of time. And, and that's what that seems to be a common theme for all of us is, mm -hmm. is dreaming of the outdoors. And I remember dreaming of like, oh, I wish it was summertime so we could go to the river, so we could go swim and do those things that um, you can't do in suburbia. Cool. And Nick? No, I was just going to say, you can still catch carp in suburbia. You no, can go to those. <laughs> you can, you can. Maybe That's some true. bass. <laughs> I always laugh at those photos I see on Instagram. That's it. That's all oh, I okay. <laughs> uh, so how about fishing? Do you fish much? I The last time, and this is a question I have not been looking forward to because you have some fanatical fishing guests. Yeah. And, um, the last time I went fishing was about 10 years ago. And this is tough because I married into a family of fly fishing men and women. Um, my wife's parents, both of them, her grandparents and her great-grandparents um, were all fishermen and women. And um, her great-grandparents grew up or actually didn't grow up. They moved. They were some of the first people to move to Eagle Lake. Um, after the war, these are some serious fishermen. Yes, we're they talking are. About. Yes, they are. <laughs> and her her grandfather would make his own uh, fly fishing rods, and and so to say they were less than impressed when I came into the family is an understatement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this this uh, this episode should give you some credibility, though. And I, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> and and my father-in-law, he um, he's always busting my chops. And and the last time was ten years ago. He has this beautiful piece of property up on the East Fork of the Salmon up in Idaho. And it's beautiful because it's never been dammed and it was never um, dredged. So it's about as unimpaired a watershed as you can find up there. And we had a big argument over my fly fishing technique. So, <laughs> but but I, I do, I, I am kicking myself because if I 
would have made a reservation about a month from now. I have been inviting uh, invited on a, a salmon fishing trip uh, next week, and I would have just lied and said, yeah, well, the last time I went was about a week and a half ago, so <laughs> I can't do that. Well, I do know a guy that's uh, trying to fill an open spot on a middle fork of the Salmon River trip for five days on a drift boat, dry fly fishing. He would probably could probably get you on that. Well, just so long He's as got not, one spot open. Nowhere near my father-in-law's place. That's the key. That I don't know, but <laughs> we've both been on it. It's a good trip. But uh, it will, yeah, if you want, if you're interested, I'll let you know after the show. Uh, okay, so let's talk about your role at uh, NIMFS, which is short for National Marine Fisheries Service, and we are located within the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. which is um, a branch of the Department of Commerce. So you guys get that? Department of Commerce, NOAA, NIMFS. That's the hierarchy. It's all under Department of Commerce. That's right. And a lot of people get confused because we are in Department of Commerce. Um, our, our sister agency, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, is located within the Department of Interior. Oh, that's odd. I didn't realize that. I thought they were all under Commerce. I've been telling Chad, we need a, a spider map. You it do. shows basically the hierarchy of all these different organizations flowing all the way down because it really helps when we're because we're trying to do things outside this podcast when and finding the groups that we need to go to. You know, it gets it gets confusing. You and know, for everybody else, yeah, too, just like the uh, the tea leaves of the of the uh, yep. the management side of the the thing. And we are located within Department of Commerce because we are in charge of mani- managing the commercial fishery. So okay. that's that's oh, that's a that's, big okay. chunk makes, of the reason why we're located where sense. we are. Okay. So, uh, what so what what specifically are you doing through at NEMS then? So my job is um, it's it's to prophesize and it is to nag. Um, and I, I work as the reintroduction coordinator and I am trying to spread the word that reintroduction is not necessarily a bad thing. And for some of these species that we have jurisdiction over, it's necessary for their conservation and recovery. And in terms of, um, nagging, it's, it's really to get the agencies that have authority to do the things that they've committed to do and to follow through and to push them so that we can get these projects moving forward. Uh, that's interesting that you would get pushback from agencies that if the overall goal is conservation. So what's, what do you think is the driving force? Well, or the underlying thing that's happening is it is there, I know probably has to do with stakeholders. I'm going to assume. Well, that's, that's politics. That's, that's all, that's all part of it. But some agencies have different missions than, than what we do. And for example, Corps of Engineers, um, Bureau of Reclamation, they have different mandates. They have different funding streams. So they mm-hmm. have different missions and they have to be in compliance with the Endangered Species Act, but that's not their primary goal where ours is to implement. Mm-hmm. Theirs is they have to be in compliance with it, but they don't necessarily have that same level of expertise. And we're there to provide that help to get them through. Okay. So some of the ESA stuff may not be, uh, say, operationally easy to work with and from those other departments. And you guys are helping them kind of, you know, taking their hand and guiding them through. I like to think of it that way. pieces. Okay. They might not think that we're holding their hand, but we really try. We want them to succeed. Right. And, um, and every, I mean, we never forget that who we work for and we want to be as efficient as possible. And um, sometimes working your way through the regulatory process is a challenge. Okay. Huge and challenge. 
And your beat uh, currently is California Central Valley. Is that right? Yes, it is. So ge- geographically speaking, you know, in terms of either watersheds or whatever, however you want to, you know, frame it, where what area of the California is that? So if we think of where we live here in the Central Valley, that's a great big bathtub that's surrounded by the, the spine of the Sierras to the east, the Tehachapi's to the south, the Coast Range to the west, and the Southern Cascades to the north. And, and all those watersheds flow into the Central Valley and flow out through the Delta, out through the Golden Gate. So the area that our office deals with is the Central Valley. We actually have um, two major offices. One one is here in Sacramento. And then we have a coastal office that ranges from the Del Norte, Oregon border down south to southern San Diego County. And there are three offices within that coastal office. Um, one is in Arcata, one's in Santa Rosa, and one's in Long Beach. Okay. Um, all right. Are we, are we, we're good on that section. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. You know, when you think about the, the, all those different ranges and the water that it provides these rivers and, you know, some of the ranges, um, like, uh, deal specifically with just snow melt, right. They have as far as runoff, some of them deal with rainfall specifically as far as runoff. So it's, they're very isolated as far as their ecosystems, which has created, their own basically species of of fish right there or or at least different different run types right different run, timing. that's yes yep, yep and and one of the things that's really interesting about the central valley and i said it was a bathtub and i know it's hard to think of it that way mm-hmm. but there was a flood here in 1862 yep. before even i was here and um there was so much water flowing through the delta and out the golden gate that that freshwater lands extended miles and miles out into the Pacific. And so oh, it whoa, is, a, really? it, it is wow. in, in some regards, a giant bathtub. Yeah. And when you have those major rainfall events, it took, for, it took months for the Central Valley to fully drain. So that begs the question, like with the current damming and everything, if an if a 1800s type of water event happened, are the dams, would the dams be sufficient? Like, I mean, <laughs> the spillway, for example, that they just, they just redid in Orville. I mean, how much water are we talking about? Is this stuff that's been engineered for now? You know, you know, that's a that's that's a question I would have to leave to the Army Corps of Engineers and <laughs> Bureau of Reclamation because I don't know, but I do know that when we moved to Sacramento and we went to the title company to sign off on the last papers for our house, and we live right downtown behind levees in Sacramento, the um, the loan officer was saying, you know. We've had a, I've I've done a lot of these lately, and the engineers they, they've been engineers from the Corps, and they all live up in Folsom, which is well <laughs> above the flood prone zone, right? Yeah, so like eighty it, feet. <laughs> uh, it gave me some pause. It's it's super interesting. Uh, Jacob Cat, do you know Jacob? Yes, Katz? I do. He does a phenomenal job of explaining that whole. And he talked about going back into the late 1800s when there was flooding involved, and then we basically re-engineered our valley so that it would so we could live here, Tame so that it, we could know. survive. Mm-hmm. And um, we've channelized all these rivers into you know small areas where they used to be vast and full of life, full of food, full of places for fish to go and eat and reproduce and go back, you know, all these things. And so we've we've definitely re-engineered the whole this central valley right and, yes we and, have which has brought up the 
reason why we're here is to we've cut off some places for these fish to go we've cut off the access so reintroduction of of species yeah and jacob does a great job at, at talking about you know the the need for that connectivity to the floodplain and right. and making those floodplain fatties that <laughs> that was what well, i really enjoyed that that day out there with them they, mm-hmm. it was it was really cool uh, we want to do an episode around taming the Sacramento, you know, back when they started mm. engineering everything. We just trying to figure out who to talk to about it. Jacob's one, one person that comes to mind is super busy. So if anybody listening has got some sway over Jacob, uh, if you could lobby for us, that would be good. <laughs> trying to get him on. Uh, okay. So I think we, we've kind of talked about what species reintroduction means, but what is it? What is like the, you know, clinical term for definition of it all right the clinical definition is the intentional movement of an organism into a part of its native range from what from which it has disappeared or become extirpated in historical times okay um I, does I think, that help yeah it, it does and then i guess it, the next follow-up question would be why why would we even need that in the first place like how do we get here yeah that's that's a big question um so in regard to salmon in, in the Central Valley, how did we get here? And, and when Europeans first came to the Central Valley as part of the gold rush, they had a huge impact. And in that impact being um, due to gold mining, and particularly when they transitioned to hydraulic mining. And hydraulic right. mining is where they are, are diverting water into flumes and then um, um, under high pressure, washing down the hillsides. And some of the first environmental laws came from those activities in California because so much hydraulic mining waste or, or sediment was, was coming downstream that it was impinging navigation. Uh. And if you look at the, the uh, Yuba gold fields, have you seen those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, those, are, those all came from the upper Yuba and, and for those folks that aren't familiar with it, some of these are mountains a hundred feet cobble. high. It looks like, yeah, yeah. It looks like supersized gravel planets. Basically it does. It looks you, you think you're on the moon when you should be on a, mm-hmm. on, on a, a river plane and you see mountains of gravel as you float downstream. And, and so that was the start of, of what we were up to back then. So it led to a period of unfettered growth, municipalities being built in the floodplain. Um, and as we uh, alluded to briefly, um, levying, channelization of the rivers, and um, then a conversion of, of the marshlands that were the Central Valley into agriculture, leading to um, construction of a series of rim dams all along the Sierras and Southern Cascades, um, which have huge benefits, mm-hmm. and, and don't get me wrong there. Yeah. Um, but they changed how water flowed. They changed the water quality. And, um, and so in, in regards to those water operations and the fact that not one dam in the Central Valley has fish passage on it, um, those are yeah. part of the reasons why we're where yeah, we are and I, today. And I, I was going to ask, like you know, in the early in the early stages of all this um, uh, terraforming, really, um, was was the idea of just you know trying to do as li- little I- impact to the ecosystem as possible, even in the equation for these engineers, was it part of the engineering problem to solve, or was it really just 
a very utilitarian, hey, we need to be able to get water from, from A to B because of these economic reasons. You know, I think that was probably a large part of the driver, but at the same time, and if as, as I've been reading through the records, there was a lot of concern about the impacts of the fishery. Um, when Shasta Dam went in, um, California Department of Fish and Wildlife was trying to figure out what to do with all these fish that were going to be coming up and knocking their head against the dam. Where are we going to put them? But so there was consideration, and in California, the consideration that we seem to take. Um, into account or how we were going to mitigate that was we were going to construct hatcheries. And so that was going to offset the impact of those dams. And um, so I think that is a, a big driver in the reason why they didn't prescribe fish passage like they do in the Pacific Northwest. That makes sense. It's funny that you're, you're quick to, to alter a river and blow out some streams to find some gold when, you know, the real value was in a species that was living in there, you know, you're quick to throw up a dam and, and change this whole river. And, and then you're quick, you're quick to do all these things. How come it's now it's so hard to, to fix these things. You, you have to go through all the jump through all these hoops, you know, there's so many different organizations set yeah. up in between that and, and it, what you're trying to accomplish. It, it's funny. Cause it, they like it, the intent was, I think, a good place but they put so much regulation on that when you'd even try to do good stuff then the regulation gets in the way and the red tape kind of slows down everything it becomes like this muck it's really kind of i'm having a hard time having a serious conversation your dog is ripping this, farts are, you can't smell, you can't smell it john but my dog french bulldog farts are not Dude, something i would recommend i can you, taste you it in my mouth right now Dude, it's, it's like <laughs> He's just, he, Uber, I think he had beans Uber, last night. You need night to get out of here, dude. dude he's, he's just sleeping Jesus, on this Oh, I think he's done. I and think it's the fact that you have a cold and you can smell too. Uh, that just shows you. Yeah, my, if my eyes are watering, it's not that I'm emotional. Okay, so let me, thanks, Hoover. Um, all right, so with respect to, um, you know, triggers for getting into a re reintroduction process, and what I mean by that is, you know, if when you guys decide, um, a, a river watershed needs to ha have reintroduction uh, activities happen. What are some of the precursors to that decision that, that drive that decision? Reintroduction, I think, is is a big word. And and I worked on the coast for twenty five years, and we were involved in reintroduction all the time as a, as a course of business. Um, we just didn't call it that. We called it fish passage. When we fix a culvert to allow fish to move upstream, we're reintroducing them to an area that they've been blocked from for 30, 40, 50 years. When yeah. we look at a bridge um, abutment that, you know, the concrete at the bottom of the stream where the water accelerates over the concrete, then on the downstream side, it creates that scour pool that the fish can't get up. Yeah. When we have an opportunity to fix those, that's fish passage, that's reintroduction. Um and, and even on a small-scale project, what you do is, well, if we're going to ask somebody to spend the money to upgrade this culvert, we better make darn sure that there's adequate habitat upstream. We don't want to send the fish to, hey, look, you spent a million bucks and we've, gave, you know, we've given you um, 300 feet of habitat. Yeah, it's, like, it's basically like you're, you're trying to get them in a club. 
they hold, they're holding the line and there's 200 people in line. You go into a big Vegas club that can hold 5,000 <laughs> and there's maybe three people at the bar and mostly staff in there. I've, I've never thought of it that way, yeah. but this is going to, this is, this yeah. opens my eyes into a new yeah. analogy. Well, you got to spend some time in Vegas, my friend. <laughs> anyway. So in, in terms of, um, reintroduction in, on a larger scale, it's the same thing. It's, is the habitat suitable? Do we think we're going to be successful? It's just the amount of work that it takes to evaluate those those things often takes quite a bit longer because instead of opening up one or two or four miles of habitat, you might be opening up 40, 50, or 60 miles of habitat. And, and typically these projects are much more involved, much more complex, and um, we have to do a lot of thinking to make sure we get it right because we don't want an organization or an agency to end up spending multiple millions of dollars and not have it thought through and thought, Oh darn, we didn't see that waterfall that was four yeah. miles upstream. Yeah. So part of it's basically just setting, setting up an ROI for success, kind of a, kind of a thing. So you can show some ROI of some sort. Um, okay. So how does this apply to anatomist fish species? What does anatomy even mean? Anadromy. Well, let's start with that one first. That yeah. one's easy. If, if you work for National Marine Fisheries, you better get this right. Mm -hmm. um, anadromy is basically um, when adults go from saltwater and spawn in freshwater, the juveniles um, go back out to sea. So it's, a, it's from sea to freshwater for spawning purposes. But there's also patadromy, which I'm sure you're familiar nope. with in terms of Kokanee or, or Browns, where they'll go out to the lake and get big and oh, then so move upstream to spawn. I did not, it's called patadromy? Patadromy. And, Pat and, and finally, you know, to totally geek out here, there's catadromy, kat which is um, going, being an adult in freshwater and going out to sea to spawn and then coming back to freshwater. But that doesn't apply to... Those are like eels. Those are eels. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Well, I thought I was all smart. You knew the answer anyway. <laughs> We've had 77 episodes of <laughs> smart people on here talking about this stuff, and I try to pick up as much as I can. Yeah, well, and it's I, working. I, I can't remember what I ate yesterday. So, Okay, um, so above the Shasta Dam, the reintroduction, can you just kind of give a high level of what the winter run schnook above Shasta reintroduction looks like? That's current status methodology. Yes, Um Shasta is is um, our primary, or maybe not our primary, but it's it's closest to happening out of the various projects that we're working on. And what it involves is a pilot, and and by that I mean is that we're not going full on in. Um, we don't know how Winter Run are going to do once they're back in the McLeod. They haven't been up there for 75 years. And as we talked about, the ecology has changed. There are, there are no longer bull trout. There are brown. There are brook. And base flows in the McLeod River have changed uh, as well because mm -hmm. of, of McLeod Dam. And um, through the relicensing process, we might see flows in – and when I say the relicensing, FERC, FERC Federal Power Act, mm -hmm. yeah. for the McLeod Pit Project, we might see base flows increase. Um, Do you know by how much? By about 100 CFS. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Did not know that. 
so that that's not carved in stone because the license hasn't been issued by FERC um, to PG&E, but those are the numbers that we've been hearing. Um, so there's a lot that's that we have to evaluate before we put the fish up there. So the first step is getting the juveniles in there and mm-hmm. see how they respond. Um, and if we step back for a moment, uh, what what we envision for the pilot is collecting the adults, moving them up, moving them in a truck, um, similar to what they already go through now because they're captured at Keswick Dam. They're um, moved into a crowd or up, a la- um, up an elevator into a truck. They're taken to Livingston Stone, and then they're evaluated to see, do we want to bring this one into the captive broodstock program or not? And then what happens to the ones that aren't, they get driven back down to Redding, and we're told that to Coleman, not to Coleman. No, uh, no, they're released back, right back into, into the river. river. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, some of these fish make that trip in the truck two or three times. That's why they really do. They have like a uni pass or anything. <laughs> <laughs> they should. That's why they close that area down for fishing uh, from April. Okay, okay, May, okay. June. Yep. So those fish would be trucked ultimately, um, released into the McLeod, and then. Unlike a hatchery. Um, Where in the McLeod? It would be in the lower portion. Okay. We want to give them as much opportunity to right. select their own mates, right. to um, find their own spawning area, let them do their own thing. So, you know, I know there's concern that, what, you know, put them in a truck. That's How, how does that work with natural selection? Yeah. Um, but they're only in that truck for a couple of hours. They're allowed to choose their own mates. It's like a speed dating. It's <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, and uh, and so I, I would say that's much more natural than having them in a hatchery mm-hmm. where, you know, we're going to breed you with you and whether you like each other or not. Then, Arrange marriage as arra- opposed to a speed date. <laughs> oh, man. I, I'm sorry. No, I'm I think getting... it's awesome. Right? It's, it's like. How do I answer this question? Well, you, you were saying like they're gonna they're gonna put them in the lower watershed of McLeod. Or yeah. is it like Balibaca lower or Bali lower Baca than that? Lower, lower yeah. than okay. Balibaca okay. lower. Okay, got. And, and this is something I think for you know the angling community. There's a real benefit here. Oh, for sure. All these salmon carcasses, it's a life source, right? Mm. And um, so you know we anticipate that you're going to see a positive um, um, response. Yeah, it's really interesting. The trees, the plants, the birds, and the fish. I mean, right. it's all it, everything's gonna mm-hmm. bugs. All so that we'll stuff. be fer- those 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 adults will be fertilizing that stream for all intents and purposes. Right. The juveniles getting the adults up there is kind of simple. the easy part. Right? It's the easy part. <laughs> um, the the real challenge is collecting the juveniles as they come down. Right. Yeah, that was my next question. That is something that's a science in the Pacific Northwest. Um, they do this a lot. They have very extensive juvenile collectors. Is this like the Columbia Basin? Is that what you're? Uh, the, well, or not, more British Columbia. This no, is, no, no, no. Not so much the Columbia, but um, uh, rivers such as the Okanagan, the Clackamas, okay. uh, the Deschutes. Okay. They and and many others where they have these juvenile collectors where they collect the fish that are coming through the reservoir. And move them downstream so they right. don't go through the turbines or whatever else that, that right. may be there. The Pacific Northwest reservoirs are much different than ours. Ours are for water storage. Theirs are primarily for electrical generation. So those reservoirs have currents coming through them. 
And so the fish are still following it's those currents. a little currents. bit easier to... It is. Yeah, right. But they still have large pumps to bring the fish into the collection facility so that ultimately overcomes the fish's escape speed. But it's a very gradual process. Mm. And um, for Shasta, we don't have power um, because we're so far away from... Um, where the dam would be. Cause do you mean like political power? Or electrical no, well, power? I don't have it. Yes, that too. Electrical. But electrical power. Okay. So we're thinking that we can't put the juvenile collector near the dam itself because those little juveniles, those 50 millimeter, 60 millimeter fish swimming through Shasta Reservoir are going to be bass food pretty quickly. Yep. Yeah. And um, so we're looking at putting collectors up near at the, the mouth, head of the reservoir. In that yeah. arm, in the yeah. McLeod yes, arm. That's exactly okay. what I was thinking. Yes. When yeah. the whole project came yeah. into play, I was thinking, I was Makes like, sense. there's no way that those fish are going to be make it to the dam yeah, to like, be collected. And, you know, there's got to be some kind of funneling process that, at the top of yeah, it. Yeah, where that thermocline is that the bass wouldn't normally be right. too stoked about. Like, that would be the sweet spot, I would think, right? That's that's right. And um, what, we're, what we're looking at at testing this year is we're going to have a thermal curtain in there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have guidance nets and debris mm-hmm. booms because we don't know how everything's going to work because mm-hmm. Shasta drops about 120 feet in a year, yeah. right? So this juvenile collector has to move, whereas the yeah. ones in the Pacific Northwest, they're static. They're anchored to the dam. Yeah. We have to be able to move ours. This is really a really cool project. Um, what it, a couple questions that pop up in my mind is – one, what time of the year would this collection process be happening? Because that's the, I got a follow-up question. Okay. So for winter run, the juveniles are going to be coming down in between August and December. Okay. And that's when you would be doing the collection. Yes. Okay. And we're looking at two collectors, one in river, because okay. we're pretty sure until flows get high, we can collect just yeah. about everything. And then we're also going to be testing that that reservoir collector because when flows are high, for for health and human safety, we have to pull. We would yeah. have to pull that out, and that uh, in reservoir collector could operate at higher flows. Okay, um, and if we're operating in you know the colder section of the McLeod arm, it, I assume that um, it's it's fairly narrow in terms of you know bank to bank, right? Will the, is this collector? Because the the pictures I see, the collector is at the front, the head of the dam, right? Yes. Um, is it going to be stretching from bank to bank? Yes. How far down does it go? How far down depth? From- the, here's what I'm getting at. You're the, we're collecting these smolt coming downstream, but at the same time of that, around that same time period, there's browns and there's resident resident lake fish. Then migrate up to spawn. You're right. What's the plan? What the plan is, is that in the thermal curtain and the guidance nets, we would have a series of cones with floats so the fish could move through, um, the the brown trout and whatever else can move through. CDFW made a a really strong point on this. You can't block fish migration. Yeah, Um, that's that's my biggest concern if I when I think about this, just you know, in the five minutes I've been listening. Um, and there's be, there's going to be a lot of people that that's going to be their concern. Yes. And, and, um, this is part of the, this is part of the fishery. This is the, you know, what the fishery is today. Right. Depends on these lake migrations. And this is where this has never been done before. Um, this kind of collection system, all the ones in the Pacific Northwest have been 
right at the face of the dam. This this is something that's very unique in regard. We don't have power, and we're going to have to keep tweaking it. The, yeah. Some of the collectors in the Pacific Northwest, um, the one at Baker Lake, um, that's so efficient at collecting these fish, it's gone through three generations um, before they finally got it right. They started in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not saying that, that this is going to take this long, but there's just a lot to figure out with different mm-hmm. flows, different migrations, and how do we do this to maximize collection efficiency of the juvenile winter run, but also allow the the resident fish to move back into the river itself. Yeah. Um, the other the other piece of it is there's there's going to have to be some sort of fish regulations put in place, fishing regulations put into place, and you know, I would say on the the lake side of these collectors because I could see where there's a potential bottleneck and people, you know, jigging or, you know, just putting their anchors down and jigging for whatever is coming through and getting kind of, they're kind of getting balled up until they figure out how to get through those, those mm. spots. Your precious Browns are going to turn from eight pounds to 15. <laughs> Dude, you know, it's not going to have to worry. You're not going to have to worry about it. There's like small <laughs> patterns. I'm thinking there's small patterns. There's freaking pegged beads or, you know, um, all right. That's interesting. It's really, really interesting. So like what, what's the, What's the timeline? Like when you guys, when's this pilot? We're going to be doing the first phase this fall. Um, and again, oh. that's that's not going to okay. be using fish. Um, we're going to be doing all the hydraulic testing, the temperature testing, making sure that, you know, these devices and all these nets and the thermal curtain, we can move it in an efficient way. And we need to make sure that the approach velocities that go through the thermal curtain, because mm-hmm. we're going to have a notch where the trap will be downstream mm-hmm. of that, are approaching the velocities that we're that we've modeled. You know, we, yeah. we're looking for three to five feet per second, so that we're pulling those those juveniles into the trap itself. And and you said this is the first time this is being done, so I assume all this equipment's being fabricated. Yes. Are you working with a consult outside yes. consultant? Who yes. is that? It's um, they're an organization, and I'm not sure if they're out of Washington or Oregon, but they're called Pacific Netting. Pacific netting. Okay. Have they shared any, um, any kind of design schematics with you guys? Yes, they have. Is that something we can get access to? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really, there, there's just, I know that this is going to be a thing that literally everybody that guides on that river and, and around that area and in the lake, they're going to be intensely interested in. Yes. So and and just, the more information we can get, the better. Right. And, yeah. and just so, um, your listeners know, I'm, always open we're we're willing to give those presentations we're willing to meet and and talk through those concerns is it just that river or are you going to work on other places as well right now we're 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 targeting the mcleod for a winter run but we're also looking at um, a reintroduction project for spring run on the yuba yeah my advice would be um definitely schedule some sort of a road show and, not, and i'm not saying like go all across country but definitely make a stop in reading and kind of set people down to understand this because i think this is this is a risk could you help put me in contact with with yeah, who we, those people might be yeah because for sure i think that's yeah. one of the things that we've been struggling with is how to yeah. effectively get the message out and and hear what people's concerns are so that our yeah. engineers can help address so those. i think the main there i would do it two ways one some sort of an, a three minute four or five minute video that runs through this illustrated illustrations, a deck, whatever it is specifically about this piece of the project. And then another one is once that's done, maybe go up there for a, an, a live thing 
and just field questions. Go through the deck one more time and then and then take questions. That would be that's, two things that's I would good try. Advice. That's good yeah. advice. Thank you. The video is really just about distribution, and you know, it's it's much easier to get a video out to people than it is to have right. people show up at six p.m. at a library <laughs> and go through something. Um, okay. Whew. I got fired. I, I'm like when, charged up after that. When your uh, winter run species are, are easy to wait, ice. Wait, wait, our winter run. Our, no, well, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get break down the, um, basically the genetics of these fish, right? And, and that's been, with these dams, there's been a lot of commingling going on with all these different right. species. Yeah, Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, I, I, I'm not a geneticist, and um, but I have some friends that are. And what I what we've been able to discern about winter run is their their genetic signature is really unique, and um, and and so it's so unique that that for the Livingston Stone National Fish Hatchery, they they take the genetic samples up at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service facility in Abernathy, and within a day, they're going to say, this is the one you breed here. This is one um, for, for, the, for the broodstock program. Mm-hmm. But there has been integration of winter run because when um, Shasta Dam went in, you had the pit, you had the little sack, and you had the McLeod. You had three distinct runs, right? And all of a sudden, um, it's 1945, and they're all interbreeding with one another. Right. But they're still winter run. Right. They're just different strains are, are different. The different runs have become one one run. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, with spring run probably being the most diverse, just because of all the different places they can go, and the Feather River Hatchery being... Because I know there's cases where the fish have been even moved, you know, brought from the hatchery and dumped into a different another stream to try to reintroduce right, that. Right, right. And that's what they're doing. That's what they've done with the San Joaquin reintroduction. Mm-hmm. It's it's not above a dam, but it's part of a, a, a settlement agreement with a lawsuit. And so they've rewatered sections of the San Joaquin, and they um, are using Feather River hatchery fish as well as some of the other um wild runs i think that they're trying to incorporate mm-hmm. i'm trying to have maximum genetic diversity and see what takes because i know they're they're freaking out about it because the spring run and fall run have been showing up kind of together yes and spawning together and they're we're losing that yes i i never heard the term before i moved to the central valley sprawl run sprawl run and i thought oh that sounds horrible that's a horrible term <laughs> that's exactly what you're talking about right right you know it's i, I keep going back to this this project um what's going to be interesting is you know how we always when we've caught we've caught quite a few like rainbows on on the mcleod right and certain times of the year it's those it's the lakers that go up that go up to spawn and we always talk about them possibly having like, you know, basically landlocked steelhead genetics in them. If oh you yeah, will, absolutely. Right? And they treat the ocean as, or they treat the lake as an ocean, but it's just this little micro, you know, absolutely. ecosystem. It's going to be interesting when those those salmon go in, right? If they will just immediately key on following the salmon up like they do on the coast, right? And will they just sit behind? The reds, all oh, this 100%. other stuff. Yes, they will. You know, and how soon will that happen? You know, day before, day one. Yeah, it's gonna be. <laughs> it's gonna change that fishery. It may fundamentally change how that fishery is fished, and it it might be a good thing. It will. It, it sounds like it's gonna be. Well, the intent is to make it a good thing. Um, yeah. 
but the tactics are going to change big time. I think you should leave that part back out. Like you just said. Really? <laughs> All right. Yes. Okay. So in uh, in season two, episode forty nine, we um, did an episode. Whoa. What? Season two, episode forty nine. I'm with you. Yeah. So in season two, episode forty nine, we learned about the origins of high stick nymphing. The wind two Indians uh, played a major role in that story. Uh, they were basically the the person we had on research and they traced it back to one of the one of the you know folks in that tribe showed uh a, a settler here how to how to high stick an nymph and then it kind of took off um they're also playing a, they're coming up again they're playing a role in this particular uh dam reintroduction or the shasta shasta lake reintroduction can you kind of talk about that what the wind two's role is yeah, the the Winnemum Wintu tribe, for the the listeners that may not be aware, their ancestral homeland was the McLeod River. And their story, I think, is just absolutely fascinating. They they lived in the McLeod, and they really weren't bothered until about the 1870s. Um, and that's because, again, the McLeod is a volcanic drainage, and there was no gold there. And... Uh, this fellow named Livingston Stone from the U.S. Fish Commission wanted to start an egg-taking hatchery facility, and he wanted to find out where are the best, where's the best place to go. And everyone said, "Go to the McLeod River." So he started an egg-taking station on the McLeod River about 1871 to, and he saw how proficient the Winnemum Wintu were at capturing fish. So unlike other tribes um, in California, which were pretty much wiped out. And uh, he decided, I'm going to hire these people, this tribe, to help me capture these fish for this egg-taking station. And it was called Baird Egg-Taking Station, and it's now under Shasta Reservoir. And uh, and, and the purpose of these egg-taking stations was to um, – move salmon eggs all over the world. So they were, moving, mm-hmm. they, were, they were moving them to France and Norway and Australia and New Zealand. New mm-hmm. Zealand, yeah. And New Zealand. Browns too, right? I don't know about that. You and your browns. Uh, yeah, yeah, they kind of have a little They were introduced to New, to New Zealand from Asia and the McLeod, mm-hmm. along with the, the rainbows okay. from the McLeod were also introduced to them. So they were, they were introduced there. And um, uh, best available information that our science center provides to us is that they probably didn't take in the 1870s, but there was another effort between 1904 and 1908 where um, they did take. So we now have Chinook in New Zealand. Hmm. And because the Winnemum Wintu were so um, intimately involved in that hatchery and salmon were a central focus of their life because salmon were in that river all year long. And they believe that the um, salmon that are in New Zealand are their McLeod winter run. And um, the best available science suggests that those are likely fall run that may have come from Battle Creek. Wow. So the Winnemum, and I don't know if you've seen the documentary, yeah. Dancing Salmon yep. Home. Yeah, no, I have not. I'll it's it really heartfelt. Yeah, it, it, is, it really it is. It's really well done, and I suggest people look at it because it it touches on that deep connection this tribe mm-hmm. has to an area they no longer have access to. Right. So um, they believe, so I, as I understand the story, uh, a, 
a researcher in New Zealand contacted the Winamum Wintu and said, we have your fish. And the members of the, of the tribe went to New Zealand and, and were on, uh, I don't know what river it was in New Zealand, but there are Chinook there. <coughs> and we talked to a, a fellow from the California, New Zealand Fish and Wildlife, um, who, who said to me on the phone, we've never seen anything like it. The fish came up to them. They came up to the tribal members. So the tribe really wants these fish that are in New Zealand to be used for the reintroduction project. Oh, for this fall project. Yeah. Whoa. There, there's, a, there's some troubles with that, though. Um, well, it's a bit of a flight. It's a bit of a flight. But <laughs> That's one. There's, but, you know, if you could ship them by ship, the eggs, you could probably ship them back right. over here. Um, there's, there's concern that those are probably fall run. There's the issue that... Those fish in New Zealand aren't listed under the Endangered Species Act. We wouldn't be doing this reintroduction project except for the fact right. that reclamation um, per a Jeopardy biological opinion has to. But then the other one that I'm not a pathologist, but the California Department of Fish and Wildlife has voiced strong concerns about importing fish from other countries and releasing them into the wild here. Um, and the biggest concern being disease and disease transmission. So there's a lot of issues associated with that. And it, it makes, um, it, it makes this project a little bit more challenging because sure. they want the same thing we do. They, that we want to see Chinook back in yeah. the river, but we, um, have, uh, a, a few things that make that a little bit more difficult. Yeah. I mean, what are the, what are the key things? Uh, obviously where are the brood stocks going to come from? I guess is one. Right. Oh, for this project, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, th what's what's pending before uh, everything goes goes live, right. so to speak? What's pending are are we have fish that are set aside um, at the Livingston Stone Hatchery yeah. expressly for the initial phases of this. Um, this project has taken longer to get along than uh, move along than we had hoped. So those fish are the ones that are actually being put into Battle Creek right now, the excess ones because okay. we can. Um, but we have fish at Livingston Stone. And those have all been evaluated for their disease potential. There are concerns that the department and others have brought up when you bring wild adults, presuming we have a successful program that the pilot says, you know what, this is going to work. There are concerns about bringing wild adults up there and disease transmission to the resident fish. Um, CDFW has done an evaluation. They say, you know, those background levels are still there. The fish haven't lost those diseases, the resident fish. So that's a good thing. Um, but the other component is that you have Livingston Stone National Fish Hatchery at the base of Shasta Dam, and they don't have water treatment facilities sufficient to account for potential disease transmission from wild adults. So reclamation is looking at, um, uh, and they've actually had come up with plans for improving the filtration facility so that disease aren't spread is not spread to um, and if, if i heard you right i was trying to follow that um the the current resident fish that that disease in in lake shasta that disease is is present you're saying that it's, it's, would be coming from New Zealand, right? It's pre not and, no, no, uh, no 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 not no. New Zealand. This is from the living. This is from uh, from living. From, no, this is from the Sacramento River. Okay. Ultimately, okay. when we okay. move adults up, because those adults are carrying some, and, and that that dam basically quarant. The the idea was maybe those fish are now quarantined. Do they? Is it still present? Yes. The, okay. the, the And that's why the ones um, in the lake. That's why Livingston Stone National Fish Hatchery 
doesn't have the filtration facilities okay. that other um, hatcheries do because they weren't conceiving of reintroducing fish above that. Right. Time. Okay. Got it. Interesting. So there's a lot of things we have to address and think through and take care of a lot. with a reintroduction yeah, project. So, so it, it seems to me like it falls a pretty aggressive timeline. Do you is that set, set in stone? It's going to happen, or well, again, we're just doing the initial hydraulic yeah. testing, making yeah. sure that the temperatures mixing that we think is yeah. the temperature is it. Are we going to be keeping hot water on the top, and are the fish going to be on the bottom, yeah. or is it going to mix? Um, and um, do we get the approach velocities that we're hoping yeah. for through the notch? Those are the key things to make it successful. And so I told you earlier, my job is to nag. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's part of the nagging is well, pushing well, them. Maybe, you know, to help you guys kind of keep everyone abreast and, and not go crazy on this topic, um, maybe we can, you know, work offline and maybe get some sort of communication strategy together where you would send a, a really quick summary email and maybe we could live read before we start an episode That'd here be, now. Here now, you know, now and again. Working with you guys on well, that? well, well, Chad, that would be awesome. We'd be really yeah. happy okay, to do that. Cool. Yeah. No, they're not. And this this kind of um, I don't know if we want to jump to that particular topic yet about other organizations and mm-hmm. and how they feel about this. Is is that? Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. So um, we there isn't tons of support for the project from some of our um, NGO community. And, and that, that's, that's a little bit frustrating for us because we, we're struggling with how do we, how do we ensure this, these species persist? And doing the same thing that we've been doing um, hasn't worked very well. You know, we only have so much, so much knob to turn in terms of flow and, and water releases out of Shasta Dam. And so we have been getting some pushback from uh, the NGOs initially when I first started. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a little bit surprising for me because on the coast, we, we, we work hand in hand. Yeah. And, and here we did face, and not to the degree that we did before, but initially we did face quite a bit of opposition from Caltrout and mm-hmm. TU and the Wild Salmon. Is there, was there a central theme? There was. Um, and actually, the themes are um, – what are the impacts going to be to fishing mm-hmm. disease? Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you focus these efforts somewhere else? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was actually and, one of my questions. Why and, isn't Orville being considered in this? And this isn't necessarily just the cow trout to you crowd. I, I'm just going through a, a list of yeah, things yeah, yeah. that, that all, all valid. All, concerns. Yes. Um, it's going to cost too much. Um, why don't, if you want more fish, why don't you just expand the hatchery? And trap and haul doesn't work. So those were some of the, and still are, some of the themes associated with the project. Is Oroville being considered? Not right now. And we did it um, in an initial reconnaissance of Oroville, and it looks like that would be tough. North Fork's too warm. Yeah. And then there's there's West. What is there, Nick? There's South. I don't know. West Branch, North Fork, Middle Fork, South Fork. The ones that are further down would run colder, I would imagine, or no? Um, yeah, I, I just don't know it's enough not, about. It's just interesting because we, you know, for example, we were taking water from the west branch of the feather, putting it in a Butte Creek, making it colder right. for these Butte Creek salmon that really didn't even need that water to be colder. 
they could survive on the water, warmer water temperatures. They adapted to that type of atmosphere and that you know ecosystem. Right, right. Um, and they they know that they were in those West Branch and Norfolk. Norfolk, uh, looking at the tables, had predominantly the the highest population of spring run. Absolutely, in mm. the whole really valley. Yep. Yes, before they put the series of uh, the dam, dams in there. The dam in, yeah. Huh. So I, it, I think PG and E called that the stair step of power. Something like yeah, stairway to power. <laughs> stairway like to that. power. I, I probably butchered it, but it's instead of like the that. stairway to heaven, yeah. the stairway to power. It's a stairway to bass now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, have, okay. you, have you heard about the um, documentary by of Patagonia that's coming out called Artificial? I, I've seen the previews of it. What's your thoughts? My my thoughts? Yeah. Um, I, I don't really know where to go because I haven't seen it. But we, we do recognize that hatcheries and past hatchery management has had um, definitely impacts um, yeah. in in regard to the timing, the size of fish, and 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 just swamping uh, the wild fish with um, with with the hatchery fish. Right, and we are and so for every hatchery uh, in the state of California, where they have to develop what's called a hatchery genetic management plan, so that things are done right. in a much right. much better way. When did that go, go into effect? It's been, it's been, I know it's been on the books for 10 years or more, but these plans take a while to get in place. Right. No, for those that don't know, it's called Artificial Patagonia's, uh, has created it basically, and it's just slamming hatcheries. Yeah. Absolutely slamming. And it's spelled, they spell it like artificial, but with with a a fish. fish. Yep. A-R-T-I-F-I-S-H-A-O. I I think it airs across the country tomorrow. On oh wow April seventeenth yeah um, it seems in, to in be a bunch of different places screenings to begin with I sent them an email and asked if they're going to be on you know like Hulu or Netflix oh or, really yeah no response no response yet I'm sure that they're getting a bunch of emails right um okay so let's and we're, we're you know we're going we've got a lot this is an out this is a long one but there's a lot of good stuff to cover here um so I'm stoked that you took time to come up. Yeah, uh, be staying in the office. Yeah, we still probably have twenty minutes to thirty minutes. Uh, we may break this up into two parts. I don't know yet. Uh, or you guys can just hit pause if you made it home already and start it up again tomorrow. Uh, so we're gonna keep going. All right. So we spent quite a bit of time on the the introduction on, on Shasta. Um, get it. We're you know we'll I think it's a good idea to maybe just do some spot checks once in a while and then we'll do some live air reads or something like that. I appreciate that. Yeah, we we do too. We I know there's a lot of people that would be interested in that topic, even down in the Bay Area, all the way up. You know, the the folks that fish uh, McLeod in the Bay, they'll be into this too. So, okay, uh, Central Valley Basin reintroduction. That's kind of your beat, right? That yes, area. it is. Yeah, and we hardly spend any time on it. So let's um, let's talk about it a, a bit. Uh, describe the reintroduction process at a high level in in the area. Uh, what are the key objectives? You know, the, what type of salmon are we looking at? Which rivers? How long? All that. You know, right now um, the, the the project that's furthest along is the um, Yuba uh, reintroduction into the North Yuba, and that unlike. The Shasta project, which was driven by a Jeopardy biological opinion um, that we wrote to a Bureau of Reclamation in 2009, this one is being driven by the Federal Power Act, and um, uh, the Yuba County Water Agency has 
entered into settlement agreements with National Marine Fisheries Service, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, uh, the the oh um, American Rivers, and um, CISPA. Oh, help me remember the the Sports Fishing Alliance, um, and and so what we're we're working under a confidentiality agreement. So I, I'm mm. I'm sorry I can't go into too yeah, much no detail, but the goal is to um, uh, move Spring Run. Um, up into the North Yuba. And it's a really exciting project. It's got some of the same constraints that we have at at Shasta in that um, New Bullard's Bar is a big uh, a big reservoir with, you know, the world record Alabama spotted bass being caught there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we're looking at some sort of juvenile collection facility that likely won't have a lot of power. Modeled after the Shasta one, maybe same, 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 uh, company that, that's no, no, no. Um, that's, that's all to be determined. Okay. We're, 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 okay. we're really focusing on how do we reduce the cost of this project? Because it might be just a solely and on river collector because new Bullard's bar at the, at the upper reaches is very difficult to get to. There are no roads. Um, mm. and so do you want to be barging people up and down with fuel and everything else right. during, in, uh, in, during bad weather? So these are things that we're we're taking into consideration. It likely you would collect them at Daguerre Point Dam, uh, which is you know twenty feet high or, or something like that that has a fish ladder on it. But one of the things that's exciting about it is you think about how the road system works in the Sierras. Um, most of them run perpendicular to the streams, mm-hmm. and here on on the North Yuba you have Highway Forty Nine that runs along the whole river. Right. And there's an opportunity for us to put fish into um, uh, the North Yuba and have let people have an opportunity to actually see them. And for a county like Sierra County that has a small population base, this, there's an opportunity to actually employ people there to help hmm. run these traps and drive these And bypass in. Inglebright? Bypass Inglebright, yes. Just because of the habitat so, that's above yeah. it? Yeah, at least that's the initial plan. Um, they looked, a number of studies have been done on the Yuba. So there are three forks. There's the middle, the north, and the south. Yeah. And all those forks are going through relicensing under the Federal Power Act. And water is diverted all over the place. Right. And, and FERC has said this is the most complicated relicensing project in the entire country. Whoa. Um, because you go, hmm. you've got diversion ditches, all over the place from the gold mining days. Right. And, and, but the consequence of that in terms of the habitat quality, particularly during dry water years, is that the south is, doesn't have much habitat for spring run. The middle has some, but it's an upper reach, whereas the north fork has a lot of uh, spawning habitat potential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So looking at, um, at temperatures during wet, dry, and normal years, um, during a wet year, it looks like North Yuba could support about 6,000 spawners. During a dry year, about four. Excuse me, during a normal year, about four. And during a uh, dry year, about one to two. Okay. And the, the uh, measurements of success are probably, are they similar to what 
what's established in, in it would be yes yeah. yes do we so get a positive replacement rate positive replacement rate okay. big spotties if the spotties are already, are oh, already world record what's gonna, <laughs> they're gonna get a whole lot bigger dude. oh boy and then okay so current status is that timeline wise is that this year as well or no 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 no, no. i wish um <laughs> that that one that one's much further in the planning process okay. because we, um, Yuba County Water Agency has has offered um, uh, as part of the settlement agreement uh, a certain amount of money, and we are doing all the evaluations um, to try and figure out what do we need with and what can we get with the amount of money that's available okay. to us. And then I'm going to use a word that I learned today from you, pedramony. Is that how you say it? <laughs> Patadromy. Patadromy. Is there any of that going on there? I heard that there is, um, but I, I I can't say for certain. Okay. It's probably still under evaluation. With Kokanee, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think there is, but I've, you know, fishermen. Yeah. I'll ask some, some folks. You guys tell me. I, I, I'm going to assume we really want yes. To know. I'm going to assume yes, but I've never heard anything of you, Nick. No. no, shaking his head. No. Um, okay. So what does your day to day activity look like? You know, a day in the life of, of John uh, right now. It's, it's horrible <laughs> with respect <laughs> to this project. <laughs> and, I'll narrow and it. Nagging, and nagging. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, there is, we get a lot of, um, there's just a lot of pushing people to, to get done the things that need to get done. I'm involved a lot you know, we talked about regulations and permitting. Yeah. I am making sure that everything that our agency is responsible for, all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed. I'm learning about new laws all mm-hmm. the time um, to to ensure these projects can move forward. And one of the things that I think folks that are really concerned about um, in terms of reintroduction is – the concept of taking an endangered species and moving it into an area where there are no endangered species, there's not a lot of support for that. Right. Um, but we have a, a, a rule under the Endangered Species Act that allows us to move those fish up there, reduce, lower their, their listing status. We can craft a specific rule and that we've drafted so that if you are conducting an otherwise lawful activity, such as angling, um, and you capture an endangered winter run, well, you know, if you're doing that below the dam, you're probably going to get in trouble if, mm-hmm. it, if, you, if you hurt it or you kill it. Mm-hmm. However, with the rule that we're working on, that if you're angling up there and you incidentally capture a winter run and you hurt it or you kill it, you're not going to be so long. You're following the fishing regs. You're not going to be subject to um, prosecution under the Federal Endangered Species Act, and that applies to. We're making this so that it apply to all land management activities that occur up that occur up there. Can I make a suggestion? Yes, sir. To that, um, the as long as they're not targeting them with what did ra- I say? rigs and tar- rigs oh. and tactics. Yes. Incidentally, catching one is different than targeting one. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think it, that's got to be in there. That happens guys. all the time on this river. And yeah. from what I understand, you, you're not allowed to bring a fish out of the water, right? You can't bring that spring run or that winter run because people do catch them, but you right. can't bring them out of the water. If you get caught doing that, you're going to get yeah. in trouble. 
because you're gonna it happens right um, and and um, the California Fish and Game Commission for the McLeod, mm. it's already closed to salmon fishing up right, there. Right. But they actually clarified <laughs> they actually clarified the rules because you know there's the general rules and the then the the very specific rules, the right. supplemental rules. Yeah. If you look at the fishing regs under McLeod, it says no fishing for salmon. So that was a very specific thing because. You know, the rules are challenging to review. And right. if you're from out of state, good night. Right. And then uh, in, in terms of pushbacks by NGOs, consultants, et cetera, et cetera, um, is it thematically the same as it for McLeod as it was in McLeod? Oh, on, it's a little bit different. We have um, another organization that seems to really want to focus on the South Yuba and they've come up with this really it's a brilliant campaign um that that shows fish in cars saying fish don't drive i mean it's it's really cute and um they they would much rather see efforts being expended in the south yuba and um and we would love to do that too however the conditions for a successful program um are not as good in the South Yuba as it is in the North Yuba. Got it. Yeah, it's got to be really challenging to do your job. It's 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 a it's fun though because I, you know, understanding what the concerns of people are, mm-hmm. you know, we're in a position that we can craft rules so that we're taking those into consideration. Because, you know, one of the things we really are trying not to do is be top down mm-hmm. and and trying to hear what are people's concerns so that. We get some support. Um, if if there's support for a project, it makes it a lot easier to move it forward. Yeah, it, it's just a you kind of like imb- just listening to you and the, all this stuff today. You kind of to me embody a little bit of legal expertise, a little bit of project management, some biology. There's the skill set required to do what you do is is kind of. It's pretty cool. Oh, thank you. Know, you. It's a, I'll have it's, to tell my boss that. <laughs> we, yeah, maybe just you know use it as a soundbite if you want. Um, cool. All right. Um, where where are we, Nick? Uh, we went through that. Post-mortem. Oh, so post mortem on on all these projects, all these reintroduction projects. Um, I you know from a software development perspective, every time we go through a big project for a client, right? Uh, we always do a post mortem. And the reason we do the postmortem is so that we can identify what the shortcomings were and then collect those and hopefully apply those learnings to the next project. So do you guys do a similar process for, say, on this reintroduction thing? I know this is the first one that's going to happen in Lake Shasta, but is there is there like a shunt or side effort to kind of like plan for us, uh, you know, you know, what's our key findings and learnings and apply them, roll them into the next project, if you will? That's it's such a good question because oftentimes the things that don't work are never revealed. People are embarrassed to bring it right, up. But and and that's critical for this. We've um Reclamation has hired USGS, yeah. um, all their biologists and scientists to um evaluate this project. And they brought in people from the Pacific Northwest that spend a lot of time evaluating um, uh, the dams and fish passage to, uh, up there. So that is certainly the intent and, yeah. and it'll take us a while to get there. But if we don't do that, um, then we're, we're doing a real disservice to the fishery and taxpayer money yeah. and, and everything yeah. else. I think like, you know, just transparency in general, uh, needs to be part of the cultural makeup of, of 
our federal and state fisheries management people. You know, it needs to be in the culture of, the, of, of those organizations because a lot of the issues that I see that I've just, you know, as, as just a, you know, casual observer, if you will, they're really focused around transparency. And then what happens is it kind of morphs into distrust because of that transparency. So then every, every decision that's made is, is questioned in, you know, Facebook groups and all this other stuff and the armchair biologists pile in. And, and if there's more transparency, people can actually kind of think about this from a more empirical point of view and understand like what the decisions were leading up to it. And part of that transparency is talking about where the failures were and how they're going to be corrected because everybody's got a job and everybody fucks up at their jobs and there's empathy there. Like people will get that and they'll understand that. But if, if the, if the cultural kind of communication strategy is not to ever talk about the imperfections of the organization, right. Then there's an issue from the public side. Right. And that's what I see like today right now. You know, and I really, you know, we both appreciate you coming on because I know that, you know, it takes a lot to come on shows like this where it's kind of, you know, it's a bit of a, un, I wouldn't say unscripted because we did prepare deeply for this, this particular episode, but it's, I like to see this, you know, and, it's a good and, trend. and we're committed to, um, um, being more transparent. And if you can help me um, uh, do that and reach out to yeah. various fishing groups and organizations. I'm willing to put on that roadshow or, or, or whatever it may take because yeah. um, if, if we don't have support for this, it's just makes it so much harder and the likelihood of success that much less. And I have to spend a whole lot of time dealing with congressional taskers and we have to, you know, write something up really quick, drop everything. And that's not a very pleasant way to spend yeah. my day. Well, off the top of my head, NorCal Guides Association, Trout Unlimited for the jurisdictions in this area, Caltrout, those three would be a good place to reach out to and, okay. you know, get a dialogue going. We can put you in contact with the folks that I appreciate we would that. recommend. Um, makes Nick, sense were, to me as an, as an angler, you know, instead of trucking them down river, truck them up river, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, I mean, opening up that water, it just makes sense. You know, it's as an angler, I get it, you know, oh, yeah. good, good. Um, I know there's going to be some hurdles along the way, but there I think be. we can bypass all that and make it happen. Yeah. Um, other areas for consideration on reintroduction other than the, Yuba and Shasta? The uh, the only other that is being kicked around, and this is just, and I don't know if this would happen, um, would be the Tuolumne, um, because we were talking about getting another population. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, we need them distributed across the landscape. The Southern Sierras has the San Joaquin reintroduction, and if not the Tuolumne, then maybe the Merced or or uh, you know somewhere else. Um, we need to get going down there, but that. That's a long ways away. Yeah. Um, do other uh, uh, um, non, just like other states, are they looking at, you know, are they in contact with you guys? Are they watching closely to maybe implement some of these these programs into their own systems? It's, it's, or are we unique? Oh, we are unique in the sense that this is happening all over the Pacific Northwest. You know, the juvenile collectors I, sh- mm-hmm. I showed you, that. It's fascinating meeting with the biologist up there because 
they they do this all the time. And I gave a presentation up there uh, recently with a bunch of fish passage engineers. And when we showed them how much more complicated it is here, they they just were their jaws dropped because we're gonna we're gonna not be in a static location. We're gonna have yeah. to move our collection devices. And they were also surprised at at the resistance. And I think. In, so some of these facilities, such as um, the ones that are operated by Portland Gas and Electric mm-hmm. and Tacoma Power, their their ratepayers have said, "No, we want fish passage. If it costs a couple more bucks uh, yeah. a month, you know, we want that because they have that salmon culture. We've we haven't lost it, but you guys are some of our biggest advocates, and." Um, most people you talk to in the Central Valley don't know their salmon there, or a lot of people don't. And working on the southern streams that I used to work on south of the Golden Gate, I, people were always shocked when I'd say, no, you have steelhead and you, we're at the southern range of coho here. You have coho. Yeah. And they, they, they were just shocked and, and educating people that we can actually have these, these species back. And maybe not the abundance that we once had, but we can still have them for future generations is, is just yeah. a really important mm, message awesome. we need it to makes, get across. Makes sense. One hundred percent. Love well, it. And and one one final point on that yeah. is um the issue of water supply and reliability. We talked about what happened during twenty fourteen and mm-hmm. twenty fifteen below Shasta Dam. If if we had more populations of winter run we probably would be able to release more water to, you know, those downstream water users than we were able to. I think the risk mitigation wouldn't need to be as, as extreme as it is today. Correct. Is that basically? That's exactly it. Yeah. That's a really good point. Hmm. Well, let's, you want to end it on that, Nick? Sounds good, man. You want to do the social media and promo stuff? Like, I'm cooked. <laughs> this was an awesome episode, but holy smoke. Yeah. Um, one cool thing. I'm going to, um, I've got discounted guide trips for starting now until in the summer. So if you want to book a trip for stripers, spring steelhead or trout fishing, hit me up five, three, five, three, Oh, five, seven, Oh, seven, one, six, one. Um, ha- be happy to get you out. Uh, I'll feel better. I promise. And, um, yeah, rate us, rate us on, uh, all the latest and greatest. Tell a friend about us. That's a new one. Tell a friend about us. Yeah, like tell that. a friend about us. Uh, follow us on Instagram at barbless.co. Uh, if you have any questions or ideas, we've been getting hit up um, on fishon at barbless.co. It's a great place yeah. to just send us a message, send us a question, send us an idea for a guest that you might like to have on the show. Um, you can now uh, tell Alexa to play a fly fishing show and the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast pops up. Yep, you install that skill, and you can have it in your in your uh, kitchen or wherever you keep your Echo Dot or your I whatever. Know anybody would want to listen to the two of us all the time. I know, too. Right? I hate listening to my own voice. I don't even know how you're staying awake uh, driving right now, listener. My voice is like, uh, you know, soothing. Um, so that sounded kind of weird. Any Stitcher, what else? Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, yeah. Amazon, Alexa. And one thing that uh, that you did today that I thought was pretty cool is those you're asking the questions on on our Instagram stories. Ah, dude, 
we're getting the best engagement that way. I think we continue to do those and we just kind of do those before we talk it's, to it's the person. It's easy for people yeah. to respond and know that their answer is not yeah, going to be yeah. seen by a bunch of people. So yeah, they, that's, they, they take yeah, time that's what it is. <laughs> I think that's what it is. And you know, if, we'll, we'll keep doing that. If you guys are, you know, we like the, the engagement, so we'll do it that way. Um, social media for Noah, Facebook forward slash Noah fisheries, West coast. John, that's your specific Facebook, I think. Yeah, I I, yeah. I have a Facebook, but um, it's only, uh, I think that's the organization as a whole. Okay. We'll work on cool. getting some fish pictures on that, your Facebook here soon. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, their website's westcoast.fisheries.noah.gov. Instagram uh, forward slash Noah. Uh, there's actually two Instagrams. There's another one, Noah Fisheries. So Noah probably... The, the big the big the one big the mothership yes the yes. Mothership, weather service the whole thing all that good stuff the one you're probably interested in is going to be forward slash noah fisheries thanks for listening you guys appreciate it um anything else fellas nope all right trout fishing this is where we cue the music later this podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors fish bio and amped up bill Fishbio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, Fishbio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Bill. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.Bill.